1: a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet, finance smarter
0: if your business needs a new application then developers will have to write code a lot of code if an application needs to be modernized then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create.
2: As a poet, you concentrate on the line to line. And that means that sometimes the general arc of something can suffer so if you're writing something that is a memoir about your life you have to make it seem like there was a narrative arc which lives don't necessarily feel that way so my my skill as a poet is concentrating on the units oh yeah let's just let that one sit there
0: that was patricia lockwood i'm sam Francisco, and this is talk easy welcome to the show Lockwood has many titles, which is odd, because as the New York Times wrote in 2014, she scarcely ever held a job. This is not to suggest the Fort Wayne-born writer is unemployable or unambitious. The opposite, in fact. Lockwood is a poet, essayist, and sometimes critic whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The London Review of Books, and Tin House. More specifically, She's been hailed as the Poet Laureate of Twitter, and at once searing and satirical voice of sanity, 140 characters at a time. But it wasn't only rabid Twitter followers that found Lockwood's profane brand of humor worthwhile. After the publication of her polemical piece called The Rape Joke, The Guardian credited Lockwood for reigniting a new generation's interest in poetry. That was in 2013. In the intervening years, Lockwood moved home and looked within for inspiration. Literally. Her latest staggering work is titled Priest Daddy, a memoir about her tumultuous childhood living under the roof of a married Catholic priest. One of the few that exists. The book is filled with facts like this one, the type of stuff you couldn't possibly make up even if you tried. Lockwood is equally eloquent, loquacious, and discursive in conversation. These are characteristics you'll find in her writing, too, especially in her poetry collections like Balloon Pop, Outlaw Black, and Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexual. Yes, those are real titles, and yes, both are worth seeking out. Even on my best day with three cups of coffee, maybe some sleep, it would be a challenge to keep up with her. She knows this fact as well. What follows is my best attempt. Oh, and sarcasm. Warning, lots and lots of sarcasm. Now, here is Patricia Lockwood. Can you say that sarcasm is kind of a mode that you generally operate from?
2: It's one of my modes. It's one of my modes. Only with like-minded people, okay. I feel. So, and we're like-minded? Yeah. I wouldn't be, like, harassing you. Well, maybe I would. It's only with a person who I consider to be generally harmonious or congruent.
0: Okay. Yeah. I can go with it. hmm Would you say priest daddy is in some way mild, light, playful harassing of your family?
2: I don't know. I feel like if that's how it is, I should have harassed them more, mm. you know. I feel like it was actually extremely gentle. It would be one thing if I were making up the quotes, but I'm not. They're they're all verbatim.
0: How did you did you write those down in the moment because I'm reading yeah. these and I'm like how could you possibly so get- so good.
2: So, yes, I was writing them down in the moment. Um, now we have things called cell phones mm. that have special notes apps in them. And so you can just pretend to be doing something on your phone while you're writing down everything your mom says. And also sometimes secretly recording her. I did that as well. I recorded her saying, epic fail. And I put it on the internet. Mm. Yeah.
0: Did people like that?
2: Not that many. It was like a vine. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: R.I.P. Vine. Vine is gone. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry, Vine. Yeah. It wasn't.
2: I, I wasn't the one who did it. But yes, and I also dispatched my husband Jason to be writing quotes down as well.
0: But he's more your age, so it's a little more appropriate.
2: Yeah, yeah, but... It was more difficult with stuff in the past because you don't remember exactly, except sometimes if someone said something that was so horrible that it was traumatic to you, then it, you know, is imprinted on your mind forever. But otherwise, you just had to sort of basically say what they said in their voice, and that gets a little bit tricky when you're dealing with people who operate already as caricatures of themselves.
0: Are you worried about family response to it? Because I know your your father won't read it. He won't. (laughs) Has your mom listened to the audio book yet?
2: No, we're still working on her. She's lazy. What
0: what does that mean, still working on her?
2: We're just trying to get her to do it. We're just like, Mom, any other loving mother would be on this already.
0: Does she consider herself a loving mother?
2: Yes, the most loving mother, and she would kill you if you uh, you know, indicated otherwise. I didn't indicate. Yeah, well, she wouldn't kill you. She would kill me. Okay. Yeah, I I would be murdered by my own mother.
0: I'm more okay with that happening than me. My mom killing you? No, no, you being killed. People
2: should pay money to have my mom kill them. She would be that good at it, Karen. Yeah, but she won't listen to it. Um, then I have some whoa, whoa, whoa. brothers and Let's, before, before we move
0: on, why do you think that really is?
2: I don't know. Maybe she is concerned about what's in it. Do you, do you think she has reason to be?
0: That's not a question for me.
2: Oh, I get to ask you questions.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, do I think she has reason to be? Mm. I'll put it this way. When I call my mom about an event that happened... In a, at a family gathering three weeks ago, yesterday. For Are these
2: example. the kind of conversations you have with your mom? Oh,
0: oh, we talk about something happened, maybe an argument that we had or an interaction. Okay. She is never excited about.
2: She, your mom doesn't want to talk to you. Your mom doesn't like you. <laughs> I'm so sorry.
0: Yeah, she doesn't like me. But no, I, she, they don't want to relitigate. Huh? That's part of it. It's almost like it's in the moment. They get angry. We try to move forward. Yeah. Anything. Diving back in is a little it's a little painful.
2: So my mom likes to relitigate because she, she likes to have different versions of events, like constantly evolving versions of events that become more and more iconic as we go. My dad, mm, I don't think that he wants to encounter someone else's reality in that way. It's also true that you're correct when someone, when my dad said angry things to us, I don't even think he remembered them later. So you wouldn't want to go back and be like, here are all the things I said when I was blackout drunk. You know, I wouldn't want someone to be, like, recording those things. My dad doesn't want maybe people to be writing down the things that he says when he's angry.
0: Why doesn't he remember?
2: I don't know. Is it, like, a blood pressure issue? Or is it just, I don't know, it just disappears in a cloud of smoke as soon as it happens. Or that's a little convenient, I don't know. Mm. I wouldn't try to delve that far.
0: I guess I'm asking you about this because you get to tell the story. It's it's almost Mm -hmm. like the whole thing of... History is written by the winners.
2: The winners. This is how I get to be, this is the one way I get to be a winner. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But it was also something, I mean, I was very, I felt very bound when I was writing it or I felt like, like my hands were tied behind my back and I was like writing with the pencil in my mouth because it was so very much important to me that I not step out of line regarding my depictions of other people. What does that mean? I don't know you have a tremendous responsibility I think writing about my dad I was not as concerned about like how he would appear partly because I knew he wouldn't read it but when I'm writing about someone like my mom or my siblings like that is a really heavy responsibility to, to put people down in a book because it's permanent mm-hmm. and then it's the image that other people people who read the book carry around with them of real living people that's a heavy thing or at least I think it is I think so Yeah.
0: but what would crossing the line look like do you think you did that?
2: Uh, no. I think, like, inaccuracy, giving a general impression of a person that was wrong. So someone like my mother, I want the general impression I give of her to feel like the way she feels to me. Mm. It's harder to do with someone like my dad, who is a more volatile personality. Someone like my mom basically gives a good impression. Mm. you know. So I'm not going to be writing down anything about her that makes her look super bad. But it'd be easy to write in a way about my father that made him seem like... Uh, an inhuman monster or something like that that's not something you want to do it's just bad art for one mm. so part of it maybe was a constraint like a familial constraint but part of it was an artistic constraint
0: you say in, in in the opening here that a book doesn't ask to begin any more than a baby asks to be born but still best to begin at the beginning
2: mm. i just read that because it sounded good me I wrote it because it sounded good. Oh,
0: okay. Is, is that a lot of your sentences?
2: Yeah, mostly. It's just yeah. like, well, it's true, but mainly it sounds good. I have
0: to say, sentence to sentence. You are one of the most impressive thank you. writers that I've come across.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Well, that can be difficult because as a poet... It sounds
0: nice, by the way. This is not at all... There's substance. I don't know if there's substance, but it sounds beautiful.
2: Thank you. It's, I, it's because as a poet, you concentrate on the line to line. And that means that sometimes the general arc of something can suffer. So if you're writing something that is a memoir about your life, you have to make it seem like there was a narrative arc, which lives don't necessarily feel that mm. way. So my my skill as a poet is concentrating on the units. Oh, yeah, let's just let that one sit there. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing we're good at. We're good at that, and we're good at, like, describing trees. Some of us are. Others...
0: Please, step like, up your tree-describing game. Friends <laughs> yikes
2: a couple of better birches in there,
0: I brought this up for a reason and and it's because uh do you feel obligated to tell this story
2: um by money, yes, because I was extremely poor when we were going into this, and it was the only thing it was like the the little you know plank that they threw me as I was drowning in in the waters that surrounded the titanic so You know, again, I'm a person who doesn't really hold down normal jobs. I had never really thought that I would write about my family. I'd never thought that I would write about my life because I feel like a private person. I don't think that I seem like a private person, but I I feel that way. So I never thought that I would do it. But at a certain point, I was like, well, I guess I have to help out. I guess I have to, like, bring in some of the bacon at some point. It was just necessary. So if you're going to do it, you should probably do it well. Wait, what what were you writing there?
0: something you you just said
2: okay is that was that like supposed to be demonstrative to freak me out no
0: okay but i knew you were going to comment on that i mean what i wrote down is that you said you feel like a private person Mm
2: -hmm. a lot of people have read the book and they're like i know you so well now Mm -hmm. you've spilled everything onto the page and i'm like no like i don't feel like that's true (laughs) i'm like you don't know me at all you'll never know me (laughs) Or they're like, I feel like I really know Jason. And to me, like, I I didn't get to put as much of of Jason in the book as I really wanted to. I had to cut a lot of his jokes. Mm. Do you want to hear one of them? Yes. What kind of bath does a pig take? Shit bath. Mm. That's it. I couldn't have got that. No, you would never have gotten in a million years. Mm. Mm. I can't think of any others at this time. He's not very good at telling jokes. So I had to sacrifice him as an expositional pawn
0: the book was written to you out of financial obligation. Yeah. But there are other things you could have done that would have been easier than writing a book. No. No. I
2: mean, writing a book is the hardest thing in the world, but it's also harder for me to have a job. I mean, it would pay enough to really help. So I was freelancing at the time. I was mm-hmm. writing, like, you know, recaps of madmen in poetry form. That is not going to put anything on the table. But it's also just the, it's the one thing I know how to do. I'm one of those kind of people so if I've written a book before I can probably do it again Uh it was just more of an undertaking I mean writing something this long it's it's not like a poetry collection it took like three years
0: I feel like one of those people but I often wonder if that's Stubbornness.
2: If I have the choice to wake up in the morning and go out looking for jobs and, like, you know, like, temp at an agency or something like that, or just continue the thing I've been doing my whole life, which is to wake up in the morning and and read and write, I'm probably going to do the second thing. In bed. Only ever in bed.
0: How how does that work?
2: How does it not work? It It works in every single conceivable way. Well, go ahead. Okay, so... I think Truman Capote was one of the other uh, horizontal writers, mm-hmm. I believe. But also, I mean, so I would like to be floating in something and just not have to move at all. Because when I'm in bed and I'm lying down, sometimes I have to clench my abs a little bit to sit up. And I don't want that to be happening. challenging. No, yeah, I don't want anything like that going on. So I'm not one of those people who <laughs> walks around and gets ideas on their leafy autumn walks. That is not what's going on with me. I can, and I can't have, I have to have total silence. And I have to have a cat near me or nothing happens.
0: What is going on with you?
2: I don't know. I think, I don't know if it's that unusual, but for me, I have a lot of like sensory integration issues. So I like to be just very still and that helps me to think.
0: I think you're also particularly good at um, making fun of, writerly cliches
2: yeah but partly that's because I, I you know exhibit so many of them I, and that's I guess you have to make fun of the stuff that you do but for me it's it's particularly bad
0: is it bad because um, there's a disconnect between you being raised in Fort Wayne Indiana and and then when you come to New York you know you you know you write for The New Yorker now I've
2: been in the New Yorker. You've been in the we New Yorker. have to make these distinctions. Okay,
0: yeah. you've been in the New Yorker. Yeah, you feel like you assume some of those writerly cliches, and I wonder if you feel that more because of where you grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is not a tr- you know it's not a whole bunch of writers have come from there. It's not like growing up in Manhattan or like some chicago or something like that.
2: well i was technically just born in fort wayne i was raised in saint louis and cincinnati so it was this whole thing where it's just like the midwest Midwest. in general pretty much and the midwest i mean it has more of a writerly tradition than i think we give it credit for but to me i think i just think it's because i write very seriously with a very serious part of myself and then there's also a side that is like stepping back being like wow like wank much you know maybe I'm in a better position to sort of make fun of the cliches because I'm from like the <laughs> because I'm from the Midwest and it seems like the cliche of the Midwest is that we don't do those things so maybe I'm just putting two cliches up against each other
0: okay if that makes sense it makes sense yeah
2: I mean is your, is your impression that writers don't come from the Midwest
0: no that's not my impression
2: I think it is for a lot of people though so I wonder about that
0: I'm thinking maybe more within the context of your family and the surrounding parts that you grew up in mm-hmm, yeah. seemed a bit different than most of the people whose bylines you'd see in the new yorker
2: sure yeah that's true and actually it's to the new yorker's credit i mean they they found me in the slush pile yeah. it was not you know like i did not know anyone and they just they just picked it out of there
0: do you think you could also be a, a comedy writer if that yes came up?
2: and in fact i keep a sort of separate timeline in my head of what my life would have been like if I had gotten to participate in a writer's room or if I had gotten to have, like, a writing partner. So there's a separate trajectory that I always think of for myself. And I love to read sort of, like, um, anything that's about sketch comedy, anything that's about, like, Second City, anything that's about SNL, I will read. Mm. Because I love reading about partnerships because what I do is so lonely. I mean, I don't get lonely because I'm, I'm a freak. But it, it's, it's just a lonely task. You're just by yourself.
0: What do you mean you're a freak?
2: I think most people get lonely. Okay. I don't ever feel lonely.
0: See, this is what I mean by why I wrote that down. It's about fe- yeah. Feeling like a private person. I feel very peop- self sufficient. Right.
2: As a person or I always have. I think that like my mind is good company or it's always felt that way to me. Mm-hmm. But it's true, too, that, like, growing up in a big family, part of it is you want to get away from them. You want to get to a place that's quiet. So part of the the solitude that I've chosen for myself is just, like, that permanent feeling of relief of just finding a corner in the house where you are away from your family. And now, picture voluntarily choosing in that solitude and in that space to write about them for three years. It's dissonant. It was a weird thing to do. It was a weird thing to choose.
0: Did you feel unhappy? In that moment,
2: mm-hmm. I was extremely unhappy. Yeah, when I was writing it,
0: like three <laughs> yeah. years of depression.
2: Yeah, it was really bad. It, I would say that I was more horizontal during the writing of it than I was for anything else I've <laughs> ever done. <laughs> it was hard. I mean, I was I was writing about real people. I was writing about like fucked up chronologies. I was, you know, having to to go back and probe your your pro life rally, sit-in childhood, I mean, that's not a pleasant thing. It's not you know pleasant to write about death or depression or the constraints that environment can place upon a person, upon a human mind. It's not fun.
0: Is it rewarding?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think so in the end. Because part of what I was doing, it wasn't just trying to get the sentences right, it was trying to get something much larger right, something that I was giving to the world, some like gestalt and that was hard because when you're writing a poem you do feel like you're you're balancing an equation but in a way it's more abstract this 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 you know this had people in the balances in the scales and that just seemed harder
0: how's your relationship with them now i mean i know they have not read the book but your relationship probably changed given that you spent three years in this world with them
2: yeah. I mean, for I was only living with them for actually eight months, but I was in the head right, of the family for, for three years. I would say that part made us closer, but it, it has been a little bit, it has been a lot chillier probably after the election. It's difficult. This is a difficult time to have conservative parents.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I've said previously in a lot of interviews that I think the book would just look a lot different if I wrote it now.
0: <laughs> Angrier?
2: Oh, yeah. I think there would be spit on the pages. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not not just at them, but at the world at large. And also the people who are feeding them this fucking bullcrap, you know?
0: Why fucking is okay, but bullshit isn't? What's that? Well, you said bullcrap.
2: Oh, I said bullcrap because that's one of my dad's favorite words. Mm. Bullcrap. I don't know. I don't know why you would choose. It, in a way, it sounds better if you think about it. Bullcrap. Bullcrap. It's fun. It's got some, like, the C really comes in there. You can hit <laughs> that hard. It's got some nice stresses to it. Bullcrap. Yeah. So uh, it's it's anger at an environment that is feeding people essentially lies. You know, it's, 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 it's positioning them in an atmosphere of lies. And it's making us, the people who love them, unable to fight back against it in any meaningful way or in any way that, that feels... Even as if it's working a tiny bit, so it's been a lot harder since then.
0: It does feel like an exercise in futility. I have parents who also uh, liked Trump. How
2: is that? I mean, how did that feel for you?
0: We don't talk about it now.
2: Okay. I mean, you seem. Cl- are you close to them otherwise?
0: Um. No. No. Not, not particularly. Okay. But those are step parents. Yeah. It's disorienting. And I don't know... I mean, the thing is, I've done the let's talk about it for Mm -hmm. three hours. Right. Have you done that?
2: It's it's difficult to know what we should be doing because we have a responsibility. (laughs) The children of conservatives, we have at least a responsibility to to try to change minds. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Or to even put it in terms they can understand things that affect their own kids. I mean, writers... Over the past eight years, it was a major, major deal for freelance writers to be like, I can have healthcare without a job. This enables me to do my work. This is something that directly affects us. So sometimes you can talk to them in that sense and be like, you know, these are things that matter to your kids, it like matters in their lives. And it's difficult to understand like how you can support, not just the fact that, I, oh, I can't <laughs> Such an impossibility an implausibility first but then an impossibility and and yet he's here
0: it seems we move past it every day like it gets a little people are sort of ambling onward you think yeah i i see people less concerned
2: well, I think that that is true, but I think it's also true that it's just impossible to operate at that pitch of intensity, what happened in, in the immediate aftermath of the election. I don't know if that is emotionally... Sustainable. Sustainable. Right. right. So the question is, how do we draw that out? How do we spin it out over a period of years where we're not operating necessarily on those same feelings, but the the activity is still there, as if it were sustainable to feel that way for the entire four years? Right. Yeah.
0: What do you feel like you want to do? I mean, you're on like book tour right now. I mean, you- this
2: is the weirdest possible time to be releasing a book that you can even think of. And you go up there and, and part of it is just like, I want to give you guys a break. Like, I want to I want to read you a funny chapter. But then it's also true. I mean, you know, this, the, these are the people who voted Donald Trump into office. So there's this whole other side of it that it's not something I'm going to deny. It's like something I would want to talk about with people. But it's also true that sometimes you'll be at a reading or you'll be signing and it'll last four hours or something like that. And then you get home and you're like, what happened? Just in that little brief period of time that I wasn't checking my phone, anything could have happened. Mm. So you feel really, really behind. I feel like I'm not keeping up in the way I should. But also, I mean, is it possible to keep up?
0: Well, it's especially not possible when your career is going as well as yours is going.
2: One hopes. I mean, I barely even... Again, there, there was some alternate timeline where this is like the, where this tour would be like a happy romp through the fields and I'm like rolling in daisies like a little puppy or a piglet or a cow or whatever the animals that are most likely to roll in the daisies are. And instead it's just like, ah! Like, have I entered hell? And is this my special task in hell? Where Trump is president and I'm touring with my book trying to be like, hey guys, buy this. In a time that it seems that no one can even sit down to read for 50 15 uninterrupted minutes without checking their phone to see what happened. Do you feel like your concentration has suffered since the election? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I am a person who reads books with, you know, everything in me. It's the only thing I like to do, pretty much, besides write them. And I feel like he's taken that from me. (laughs)
0: It's, it's the only thing you like to do?
2: It's basically. I mean, it's the main I like to take baths sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's nice. He's ruined those too. <laughs>
0: do you feel bad that you have to promote this right now?
2: Yeah, it feels um, frivolous. And then it's also, in the book publishing world, you have to position books as something that is urgently necessary in the time of Trump. So now we have to talk about our books in terms of Donald Trump, now we have to to say, you know this will be a guidebook for you for the next four years. This will give you insights into the kind of people who considered him a possible president. yeah, and there's something that is um that it makes me angry about that.
0: Well, it's intellectually dishonest.
2: It's not just dishonest. it's just like mm.
0: pandering a little bit it's, it's it's a whole bunch of little things.
2: a whole bunch of little things, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. none of them good. none of them are good, no. Yeah, so that was that was my my main thing as I said it on the tour. I'm like, is this even a time we should be doing this? Like, we continue to try to sell books in this in this era. But what's better? I mean, to not do that is it better for writers to now be following the news 24 seven than to be working on their projects on their books, like things that bring beauty into the world? <laughs> I don't know.
0: You know what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? There's gonna be a lot of uh, really. Wonderful, insightful, poetic art that's going to come out in the next three to four years. But boo. Actually. mm. Let me finish. Uh, And then I'll let you interrupt. Boo.
1: Boo. Boo. Boo.
0: (laughs) It will not be recognized in the Mm. next three to four years. Okay. But I think in a decade or so, Mm. once enough time has passed and people... Will go back and be like, oh my God, remember that book in 2018? Well, no, of course you don't because no one has time to do any of that right now.
2: That's interesting because I tend to feel that the art that is made in the immediate aftermath of things like this is not the best. I feel maybe like someone has a better perspective 10 years down oh, the road. Oh, for sure. Maybe yeah.
0: I'm thinking about stuff that was written I think that there were two years ago or like was that, that's, that's how. That's the totally process. Yeah. yeah,
2: there are t- completely writers who predicted this sort of thing. I mean. It's it's been a constant threat throughout history, really. That like the buffoon rises to the very top, right? And mm-hmm. he like upends the world.
0: You said in an interview that you like to be uh, the clown. You like to be well, not performing. even.
2: That, I don't know that I like to be the clown.
0: Or rather, I, you it's are.
2: A, it's probably just a kind of nervousness, <laughs> or it's something that diffuses situations.
0: Are you nervous?
2: No, I'm not nervous right now at all. It's it's something. It's some sort of mechanism that was formed a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that comes up for me in social situations. I mean, when I'm sitting by myself alone, I'm not like telling jokes out loud or anything like that. But when I get in, <laughs> when I get into society, I'm very um personable in that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I see.
2: Yeah. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if like clown is the right word or show off or something like that. But there's, there's like a childlike element to it probably that is like performative.
0: Do you like to please people?
2: I don't know. That's hard to tell. Probably. I mean, or it's probably necessary to me to do that, like with the way I was raised, for sure. But it's a person like me is constantly taking the sort of emotional temperature of a room and rushing to correct it where it feels either too warm or too hot. So there's an element of the clown that is actually sacrificial. This is what I think. So if I can be the person who goes into a situation and says the silly thing or even the stupid thing or the thing that like deflates tension. Makes everyone's life better. Right. So then I'll take that on me. I can do that. And then you guys can be a little more comfortable because the rest of the group coalesces around the clown, right? Either to like roll their eyes or to enjoy it.
0: Maybe that's what I'm responding to because I feel like that's my job. Oh, no. Like, most of the time. Oh, so
2: we're like magnets that are just pushing and pushing yeah, and they can that's... never touch. Oh, no. <laughs> it's actually really uncomfortable when you meet another clown. It's like clown hatred or, like, uncontrollable clown attraction. Like, you're so right. This is true. So you can only have one clown in a room. Just like you can only have one guy with a guitar at a party. <laughs> <laughs> You also have to understand that by this point in a book tour, you are not even a human being. You're just like a pulsing bag of caffeine that is occasionally making little squirts. (laughs) (laughs) You're not eating real food. It's completely like we live on French fries. We talk so much and about ourselves. It's not good for human beings to talk as much about themselves as you have to do on a book tour. No. No, it, 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 it enters into like... You start to understand, like, why Kanye is Kanye, Are you,
0: know? you Kanye I in the am making? I
2: personally Kanye in the making. I'm like, oh, man, like, the person who talks about you. Like, and also, you're put in situations where you're encouraged to talk about yourself, which is unnatural. Unnatural, yeah. Unless it's therapy or something. You don't want to, like, be having public therapy on people's laps and, like, in their faces.
0: How do you balance that, then? I mean, if you feel like you're going through this publicity tour and you're exhausted and a little understandably delusional from talking about yourself all the time to
2: people like you so it's actually interesting because you become an automaton it it gets into your muscle memory somehow that you know how to go to airports you know how to ride in taxis you know how to to get to these events and do these specific things but you feel like your mind is completely absent i don't know where my mind is right now if i had to sit down and try to write something real I don't know that I could do it. I would I would have to, like, pull it down from the clouds. It's, like, barely tethered to me at the moment.
0: Absent-minded.
2: Yeah, but not even quite. It's more like I'm protecting it. I'm like, I don't want you to have to see this. <laughs> Follow, like, 20 steps behind.
0: Have to see it.
2: Yeah. You're just a body. You're a body that talks.
0: I think you are protective, but I, I'm not exactly sure why.
2: Of my mind? All of it. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and it might—you might not know until you see me, or until you have a conversation with me about it in person. Something happens to my eyes; they're shark eyes. (laughs) They become shark eyes, or there—a little wall went down. Uh huh. Yeah, there's something very, very protected there. Yeah.
0: Why are you doing that?
2: I don't know. It—it's—it's just um, in my family growing up, an emotion could be wrong, so you could be wrong about the way you felt. So it's something you 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 learn not to show any of that, really, but there is a necessary generosity that comes in something like a Q and A or when someone is talking to you, you have to give them something. So maybe with someone like me, initially I give jokes, and then I can move past it into something a little bit more real because i do I do like to talk in that way, and I do try to really tell the truth when people ask me those questions.:
0: Do you remember an emotion you had that was wrong? As a kid?
2: Um, uh, any emotion, I guess, that was dissonant with the larger prevailing mood. So when you're dealing with a larger-than-life figure, I talk about this in the book, that his emotions are like the weather for the house. Right. So if you're displaying something else, it goes against that. And even if you're not being actively yelled at for it or something like that, you feel that it's different. You feel that you're pushing against something. And I think that, that you learn to, to go... I think with the movement of, of, of the clouds or the winds, whatever is happening, like the larger elements in the house, you learn that you have to go along with those.
0: Do you think that stuck with you?
2: Probably, yeah, yeah. And there's something about being um, stood up in a spotlight that you do feel like a kid, and you're sort of like in an in, in amateurish, like school play sort of situation, like you're getting up for the first time. There's something really vulnerable about it that doesn't feel entirely adult. You don't feel exactly like an adult when people are asking you questions about your real self or your family. Uh-huh. You feel like a, a kid and you feel like you have to maybe like justify the things that you really feel. or You have to explain them in such a way that people will really understand. You remember when you were a kid, like that feeling that you really needed to make people understand what you were like. Right. So if you said something wrong then people walk away and they have this wrong idea of you in their minds
0: well i would practice it like for like five minutes in my head b- before i would say anything oh my mom's a lawyer so i was like okay i have to make sure oh. this argument is cogent <laughs> and even if it was a feeling it had to be you know, I had to get some some good you know some basic logic in there
2: huh no i never felt like that <laughs> i thought that you had to make it beautiful i tried that you tried that too <laughs> <laughs> but failing that, there must be logic in it. <laughs> but you were going to tell me more about your Catholic upbringing.
0: It's something I've actually never talked about on this show, even though we've done it for a year. It hasn't come up. Okay. And it's because I don't have much to give you. I, I, I we went, or rather, I went to that school purely out of. Uh, Obligation, yeah. And my parents hated the public school that we lived near, and they I, thought this Catholic
2: schools are good schools. This is a
0: better school. Yeah. My parents aren't Catholic.
2: No, no that that was that was true of a lot of you know.
0: Yeah. So I like passed out and fell asleep during religion class <laughs> oh, all yeah. the time, all the time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean the the real Catholics did too. <laughs> me, because I'm like I already know this shit. Excuse me, I've got God in my house. And me
0: because I I don't know it, don't want to know.
2: Yeah, it. you don't need to get that in there, no. But you had to wear the uniform, right? The, Ooh, the blue yeah. pants and the... Oh, yep. God, and the same the khaki, yeah. You didn't have to do ties, did you? No,
0: no ties. Did you have to do even <laughs> No. Okay,
2: so, yes, when you're younger, you do a kind of jumper. Yeah, over the jumper. Over a blouse. Yes. And then you graduate to skirts to be sexier and at some point, I
0: think. It's weird because the girls do get more attractive because I think they change. The guys kind of stay with the same boring...
2: They always have to have the... But maybe that's just, like, not what we're into, maybe someone else is like fetishizing the schoolboy. I'm certainly someone is, but who? maybe it's just not us. Well, I don't. Someone in the world. <laughs> someone who went to Catholic school <laughs> or who didn't, but there was a Catholic school across the street uh-huh. and they saw them walking back and forth. But yes, and then we did the skirts, but in high school I it was kind of a progressive one for us, so we just had to wear a collared shirt and either a skirt or the slacks. I don't know that I ever used the word slacks again after I got out of Catholic school, but they were slacks. (laughs) You wore slacks. Yeah, and one of the schools I went to, because I went to, like, so many Catholic schools, one of them you had to wear, like, a special blazer when you went to a church service. Like, there was a crest on it? There was a crest on it. It was bright red. It was, like, a, a cardinal color, and it had, like, a huge crest on the boob of it, and it was just like, why are we doing this? And a lot of those girls weren't Catholic. It was just—it was just a really good school.
0: How did you match up with your contemporaries, like in high school?
1: Hmm,
2: I think I was the clown then too. So it was never—I never felt like an outsider or anything like that. Like I always had friends, but it was partially because was a joke first. Maybe I mean, with some in in a wider classroom setup, like a wider classroom setting, I think that it was. But I, I, I existed in their midst probably as a sort of novelty, which is the way I exist now among my contemporary writers. You know, I'm, I'm like a mascot or something. I'm something a little bit different. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a welcome presence, but you're not totally 100% one of them, I think. It was like that in school. Yeah, you felt you, you were a little bit set apart or like a different species or something.
0: Do you want to be one of them?
2: Honestly, well, what does that mean, though? I mean, we're not—we shouldn't be just looking at them as a mass. But no, I I wanted and I I longed for a really, really long period, you know, to have gone to college, to have existed in a sort of academic life. But the the way I come into it now, I think I don't—I wouldn't have actually liked that very much. I don't like the way that we learn to talk about books. I don't like the way we learn to think about writing necessarily. I think that Elif Batchaman is right when she says, you know, I would rather think of writing as almost anything other than, you know, a craft. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Maybe better to be one of those... She gets people angry. I love her. But maybe better to be one of those people who, like, lies down in a pile of crystals and says that, like, a spirit possesses you when you write, you know? It's, It's not even the fact that it's such a bad idea in and of itself, is that we we all open our mouths and the word craft comes out. So it's just, it's its like a lockstep idea.
0: What's the worst thing we do when it comes to teaching people how to write and read?
2: I don't know. And I wouldn't say, no. oh, well, with reading, I think we 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 tell people that intent is in the writer like an arrow. And it's something that can be discerned. You know, when we talk about what did... What did Hemingway mean when he wrote this? He meant the fucking sentence. Like, that's what he meant. That sort of thing drives me crazy. With writing, I, I I don't have as much of a problem with that because it's, again, you're creating a space where people can write. You're creating a time where they can write. And I've never actually participated in creative writing classes myself so I wouldn't know sort of the things that we tell people. I was in one creative writing class in senior year of high school and all that happened is that the teacher's fireman husband Uh came in one day for class and read an erotic poem about his wife's avocado. It was a metaphor, which I didn't even know if that was a good metaphor because if you squeeze it, it just like turns to goo. There should be be some kind of juice is what I'm saying. It
0: may have been metaphor specific
2: to his wife my teacher that she had specifically avocado cooch I don't know Who
0: I don't knows? know I don't know I wasn't there I'm just trying to help this guy out he's a fireman <laughs> so He we're... did it. He's, he's doing a good service
2: <laughs> like these senior these senior girls sitting staring at him while he reads the poem about his wife's avocado and we're just like oh my god and later they divorced but in a way didn't that teach me everything I needed to know about writing the uh, the one avocado class I think that gave me my foundation <laughs> and what in the hell <laughs> like, <sighs> oh that is a good memory mm.
0: um let's just go into uh, well, this is the worst but it's been t- it's been talked about too much but we should go over it the us and them it's a distinction you keep making, mm-hmm. and I know you don't. You I asked you if you want to be part of like this writerly clan that doesn't really exist anyway, but you no, do feel like a, but feeling like a mascot. Yeah, I get. You're you've you've really developed an ability to uh, make a joke out of anything you're feeling mildly uncomfortable about or something that may upset you.
2: It's not necessarily even uncomfortable. It's just like um, when your adrenaline's up a little bit. Those are the things that rise, like helium. Those are the first things up there. And so sometimes they're the first things out. So it's not as calculated as that.
0: Mm. You don't think it's calculated?
2: Mm-mm. No, no, no. It's compl- It's like a the reflex.
0: Is the writing the easiest way for you to...
2: It's the easiest way to control what I present, yes. And... It's the easiest way to control the tone. So when you are talking with someone, your tone can get out of hand. Like It can escape you. It can be a little bit beyond what you want, like a little more manic or a little too confrontational or a little too serious. But you can control what you put on the page. And that's what I like. I like for them to be my words and in my order.
0: Is that true of most interactions that you have?
2: That my tone gets away from me?
0: No, that you like to be in control of
2: Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or I just like to let the other person take the reins. That's good too. So it's either or. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Is that what it was like in your household? Because oh, you yeah. t- toggle back and forth in the writing.
2: Yeah, 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 for sure. So there's one, there's well, it's not true. My my dad's voice was very distinctive. It was more authoritarian. But my mom's voice was very distinctive as well. I mean, you can definitely flip open to any page, just read a blind sentence and, and not the dialogue tag, and you can know what's my mom and what's my dad. So I was listening a lot. I felt that my role in the house, I mean, you were being shouted down, certainly, in a lot of situations. But I, I was also kind of a natural listener as a kid. But in a in in something like this, in an interview, I'm being put in a position where I'm being asked to talk. Mm. And maybe I like to talk on my own terms. So maybe d- something does come out that is a little bit confrontational, a little bit resentful. Because I'm like, you know what? If I want to give a monologue, I will choose the time and the date and I will stand up on the stage and I'll do it on my terms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair.
0: Moving forward from the book in life after this what do you want to have a monologue about what do you want to stand on the stage and say
2: mm. I just want to write poetry again oh it's so restful it's like going to heaven it's not like that to write prose do you write? are yeah, you a writer? I, I do what do you write?
0: <laughs> um, how I pay for my life now is just through writing magazine articles oh cool but I don't. Okay. but that's not
2: you don't like doing that? The couple times I've done it, I actually found it really fun. It's fun. I kind of like a deadline. I'm it, like, oh, all right. It's fun. Somebody's over me with like a ruler. I'm going to do it. You know, <laughs> like, I can do this. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if I <laughs> could have had some different life as a magazine freelancer where I go out to like the the bunny ranch or whatever. I don't even know. So what is this <laughs> sort of thing that people do? I get my mom high in Colorado. I do want to do that. Yeah. I do want to get high with my mom. That's fun for a minute. All around it. it's fun for only a minute, uh. Karen Lockwood, I guarantee. Oh,
0: that no, that would be fun forever. We we'll
2: would take it a little bit farther, yeah.
0: That would, that's like a weekend, at least. Yeah. I just mean the job of being a freelance, you you did it. I mean, it's it's yeah. uh, pretty... And
2: you can't get the money when you need it. Oh. It's always after the fact. It's so dehumanizing to have to like be begging all the time. Yes, it's rough. It is a really dehumanizing that, that, life. That is my existence. And you probably now are thinking about things like health insurance and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah.
0: Till yeah. Well, you can still be on. Yes, but yeah, I, <laughs> yes. It's been a conversation. I'm just thinking out loud. It's good.
2: Yeah, I just want to make sure you're okay.
0: But I'll but I'll answer the question. Yes. Yeah, I'm doing more like comedy writing. Okay. And that's fun, and helping people with their short films and their scripts. That's also been fun.
2: That seems fun.
0: That, that has felt rewarding in a way yeah. I haven't felt in a long time.
2: Do you like collaboration? And, I do. Yeah.
0: With the right people.
2: Right. So uh, I think a part of me is like, yeah, if I could have found like a, a comedy partner, that would have been something really great.
0: I Okay. Well, that's a, a different talk. Yeah. There are people that for sure you should write with.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. I was doing a reading in Chicago and afterwards I was hanging out with a bunch of click hole writers and it was the first time I had that sense of Chicago as like a comedy city. So I had been there before and I knew, you know, I I knew that it was, but I had never felt that way about it. But I was sitting there in a booth like eating tater tots and like the most disgusting (laughs) macaroni and cheese in the world with these click hole writers. And it was like, oh, it's that's a scene.
0: Those are good people. They are
2: good people. They're very, very funny people. Very funny. Yeah. They're lucky that I didn't like pin them all down and ask them a million questions <laughs> because I want to know. I that's the I, I will just listen for hours to people talk about comedy writing, mm. and the particular like ecosystem, the balance, the sort of like conversation that you have that needs to happen in comedy.
0: Mm. But poetry is the answer for now.
2: <laughs> yeah, for now. Yeah, yeah. Wait, have you ever written a poem?
0: Not since high school.
2: All right, I'm gonna get. Well, that wasn't. That. <laughs> I'm going to give you an assignment. You have to write another one.
0: For you? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. I'll give you a topic once I think of it.
0: Okay. Okay. We'll go over that later. Okay. Did you think that the rape joke would go over the way it did?
2: No, but I mean you don't ever think that's going to happen with a poem. And again, as I've <laughs> I've had to tell multiple people um in interviews I was living with my parents when it came out. So it was accepted for publication like months before that. And it didn't actually come out until I was ensconced in the bosom of the family rectory.
0: And you you go downstairs and you see your mom is is on the laptop. You know,
2: probably like Jason woke me up or something and was like, oh, this is going on because he's a helpful buffer in that regard. So I had pretty much forgotten it. But no, you don't ever think something like that is going to happen. It's probably better, actually, that I was in a that I was in a situation where I was less up my own ass about being on the internet constantly, you know, and, like, checking comments and things like that because some of the comments were pretty brutal. Not, not that those have ever really bothered me, but I was participating in a family life. So something like that was happening, like, you know, your poem is going viral on the internet, but you're like, well, you know, I have to get in here and, like, ask my dad a question about the pope or something like that it's like i got other shit to do okay mm. <laughs> we're having a fight about vatican ii right now <laughs>
0: <laughs> did it hurt to write that
2: no no it felt um exhilarating yeah it wasn't like writing priest Daddy at all because it was just it was just about me and it was just about a sort of body so i love to write about the body I love to write about the body sort of taken to extremes, limits. There's something extremely um, transcendent for me in that. So it didn't feel that way at all. And I also, I mean, it, it was like a fugue state. I don't remember much about it. And then you come out of it and the poem is written, which doesn't happen very often. That's that's infrequent.
0: Hmm. The writing process for you, is it bit by bit or is it does it have that? With poetry,
2: yeah, it's it's definitely I'm I'm just tacking little bits onto other little bits, and then there's a moment because you are you're working with um things that seem very rigid. You're you're working with rigid units once again, and then there's a moment where everything just like turns into liquid, like mercury, and then it becomes a blob. Mm. So something happens. There's a moment where the poem like liquefies, where all those little bits that you're working with, that feel like you need to move them into the right place and they're recalcitrant and, you know, they're not working with you. Suddenly they, they coalesce. That's what happens with a poem. It doesn't happen with a longer book, although it can happen with individual chapters or paragraphs and things like that. So I had to find that feeling in smaller places or more mundane places in that book than I would usually find them within a poem.
0: Hmm. Do you feel like you're getting better as a writer?
2: I don't know. I don't I mm, I would think that any writer who's like, yeah, I'm getting better all the time is probably like fooling themselves. Mm. We know we have on record that people always think they're writing the best things of their lives. when it's like, you know, it's like Marianne Moore. Why were you translating the fables (laughs) for like 20 years? And everyone else is like, why are you doing that? And it's never actually your best thing. So, no, I'm not I'm not going to go on record (laughs) saying that I think I'm getting better. I think I'm getting worse. There you go. Every moment.
0: Can you reread your stuff and be, ah, okay, that was that was all right. That's a yeah, good rereading
2: stuff is interesting because sometimes you just don't remember. And then if you go back a long enough way, you're like, wow. And then sometimes you have the feeling you were slightly better then which is always anxiety-inducing.
0: I find that I was, uh, you know, my lifespan is a little shorter than yours. Not, not, slightly. not much.
2: You know, in, in geological terms, it's Nothing. just a, a whisker.
0: It's a whisker. I always think, I was more uh, direct. Back then? Yeah I, I was... yeah.
2: I don't think that's uncommon. I hear a lot of people say, when I go back and read my teenage poems, I, they were so much more honest.
0: Uh, honest? Well, honest about what I felt then. M- m- just the flowery language.
2: Yeah, you gotta cut that shit. Just hack it off.
0: Do you cut it off? No, I like Because you like have a lot of flowery language. language. Yeah, I'm about I about to like... say, we can flip to any one of these. I
2: like flowers. But I like... English flowers. I like a slightly... I don't like hothouse, like, ostentatious flowers. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Are you going to read a piece?
0: No, I'm
1: not.
2: You're going to prove me wrong. No, I like to keep that. And I think that it's tyrannical, the whole, like, Hemingway dictum that we have to be writing in these, like, these beats that are just, you know, stripped of all of our adjectives, and especially adverbs. I love adverbs. A lot of times... In English language books, like the locus of the humor is in the adverb at the end of the dialogue tag, particularly with like British and Canadian writers. I think that's just a totally weird thing that we've all decided is bad.
0: Well, see, aren't you glad you didn't go to college then?
2: Yeah, I guess. I probably would have kept that opinion either way. I mean, the, I know that the the whole idea now is to trim, 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 but I, I, I just resist that. I And I also resist the whole idea that your titles should be as serious as the grave <laughs> every time <laughs> like, i just i want to have a i want to have a little fun with my titles you know i want to keep some of the flowers.
0: <laughs> I feel like you avoided a lot of bad writing habits by it's the hard
2: to, it's hard to i could have just picked up a whole set of you know others you never know honestly but it it's true that if you're self educated you're you're just reading really deeply into the people that you've chosen and that can be bad for you too, but mm. not always in ways that you can perceive at the time let other people perceive it after you're dead i guess
0: is there something you hope people will perceive about the stuff you've written after? when you're dead? i'm dead no yeah.
2: and also i'm never going to die sam so that's a foolish question on your part i'm the one who's going to keep living until well i don't know at that point what would it be would it be the end of the world
0: no just the end of your existence
2: but I'm never, that's never going to happen. Okay, so, so that, keep that doesn't happen until we're all shot into the sun. But I can't die. So you're I'm the sorry. last person. I'm the last one.
0: Isn't that going to be terrible for <laughs> it's you? It's like
2: the giver. I'm the one who's <laughs> to carry on with all the memories of the human race. <laughs> Do you guys read that in school now?
0: Do we read that in school? You mean when I was in grade school?
2: Yeah, did you? that in school. Yeah, we
0: read it in school. <laughs> it's like sixth grade. Yeah,
2: right. That's a sixth grade book, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is there something I hope people No, I don't like to think about that. Okay. I've always thought of myself as existing in posterity, but I've never really thought what people would say about <laughs> me, so I haven't I haven't really gone that far. <laughs> that's probably healthier. Just be like, yeah they're gonna remember me but I mean you could be remembered in the way that's like you know, the guy who wrote like the Tay Bridge disaster. William McGonagall. The worst poet ever to live.
0: Is that true?
2: You should look it up just to make sure that I got the name right.
0: Okay, we'll look it up after.
2: He wrote some really, really bad poems. So, but would it be that bad to be remembered for writing bad poems? I mean, you're dead. The worms are eating you. Does it matter? If some little bitch is sitting there in a podcast <laughs> saying that your poem about a bridge was not any good. <laughs> I don't think it matters.
0: Three months from now, uh, this tour will be mostly over, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. It'll, yeah, It's going to be over like next week. but okay. <laughs> You're getting the very tail end of the, you know, the lunacy.
0: Yeah. But this is all over, whatever time that, that is. Mm. What does it look like for you?
2: Mm, I just see my bed again. I just see my clean white bed. I'm going to be lying right in the middle of it, hopefully, just like crashing my way through a novel in some c- crazy, like Kerouac fashion where it just comes all at once. What I'm hoping is that I experience some kind of like uh, lightning strike of creativity that is my reward for going so long without a mind mm. on this book tour <laughs> for <a> pre <priest>, study. <laughs> Hmm.
0: that could not come quick enough for you sure. no it could not no yeah
2: no <laughs> i mean i like this i like talking to you but yeah i want to get back in my bed
0: you seem genuinely upset about it i mean you make jokes but you seem No, it's it's, it's so it's, cr- it's frustrating it's
2: wonderful to be on a book tour but yeah you're Sh- like I for, d- forget all this I, is you not don't have actually to... what i do right yeah this is not what i do you want to <laughs> go back to your life yeah yeah and that's where my real life is that's how it feels
0: Well, I'm I'm happy for you. Thank you. When, if, and when you do get back there.
2: Yeah, I'm going to get there someday. Hopefully I don't die in like a really ironic way after all those things I told you about how I'm never going to die. Hopefully I don't step out of these offices and get plowed over by a taxi as soon as I leave the building. But if I do, you will get more listeners for this podcast (laughs) than you have ever dreamed of. So in a way, it wouldn't be too bad if it happened.
0: No. Mm -hmm. And it's good to be in by you thinking of me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a very generous person.
0: Definitely. Mm. Patricia, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: special thanks this week to Elizabeth and Jennifer at Random House for setting up the space to record. Patricia's memoir, called Priest Daddy, is available in pretty much any bookstore you frequent these days. We'll also include a link to its page on Amazon in her show notes. You can find that at www.talkeasypod.com. And while Patricia's book tour has come to a close, we can all take solace in the fact that in this moment, probably even right now, She's writing again. Probably poetry, and probably in her bed. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you should definitely check out past episodes with folks like Sherman Alexie, Wesley Morris, Alyssa Wilkinson, and many more. Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. our new theme music is by the wonderful Dylan Peck, our assistant producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, And the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sanford Goso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The